Blog Talk Radio. This is Fanatic Radio, America's premier sports music program. I'm your host, Mike Gardner. Join with me always, my partner in crime, the notorious Ben Florence, who is the proud owner of a newly renovated Bflow360.com. Love the new facelift you gave to the website. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, I decided, you know, I wanted to, to, to mix it up a little bit. Somebody had designed me a, a logo. I mean, it's not, you know. I'm not going to go off and say it's the greatest logo in the history of graphic design, but it's, you know, I wanted to mix it up. I started actually designing that logo like, like a year ago, and but I didn't forget about it. Touched up the site a little bit. Wanted to mix it up, but of course you get the, uh, the same great content as always, including this show. Absolutely. How's your week been so far? Uh, but we've been uh, pretty good. Uh, second to last week here in D.C. before I head back home for a few weeks, before coming back to school, that's right, you know, something you'll never have to uh, feel again, you know, coming <laughs> back to school. But, uh, yeah, how about, uh, how about yours, my good boy? Uh, busy, busy. A lot, of, um, a lot of things going on in the week of sports, a lot of things going on in the house. Speaking of B-Flow returning to American University, we'll give them several shout-outs as several teams have announced their schedule, including reigning Sweet 16 team, the... AU Volleyball Squad, and NCAA Tournament Team of Steve Jennings' field hockey team, along with both soccer squads, announced the fall schedules. So we'll get to that later. But we begin today with Rory McIlroy, who could only rightfully say dominated his hometown grand or hometown major, winning by an extremely wide margin over Sergio Garcia and surprisingly Ricky Fowler. It's great to see him competing at least for a top two spot. But Roy McIlroy, 25 years old, has already wowed the golf world by doing well at several majors, including, I think this is now he now just achieved a career grand slam. Uh, Flow, your initial thoughts of what the landslide and beatdown Rory took in uh, the British Open last week. I think that if there was any doubt in anybody's mind, that the next big star on golf stage, the next uh, Tiger Woods, if you will, it, it's Rory McIlroy. He was spectacular, really, all weekend long. You know, sometimes you hear, I, I would hear people say, oh, well, uh, Rory McIlroy, what's he up to? He's, he's joined an elite company of having three of the four triple crown, or not the triple crown, the other four majors, by the age of 25, all he has left to win now is, uh, I believe, the Masters. Then he'll have the career uh, Grand Slam. So, McElroy, he was absolutely uh, tremendous. It was a very strong weekend of golf. Uh, Fowler was great. 
figure Garcia has the reputation of being the choker and uh, a major tournament and for a lot of tournaments as well. But he had a strong week, but nobody, nobody had anything for uh, McIlroy. He was just tremendous all day. And now I think that a win like this could really set him up for a dominant run going forward. Uh, and there's a reason why that uh, Sports Illustrated kind of tug-in-cheek have it in my hands. They're like, why don't we just start talking about the Masters right now? The 2015 Masters, Roy, is Rory the favorite? It, yeah, the, the cover the cover said Masters preview 2015, why not? So McElroy was absolutely tremendous and one of the stronger displays of golf I've seen of late. And it really showed the kind of talent the kid has in that he, there's, he's only going to get better. So, again, he is only 25. Yeah, it almost seemed like a lot of people wrote, wrote him off when he wasn't winning the Masters or doing poorly, missing cuts. And he's only, like you said, he's only 25 years old. And there's something about being that young with still so much. He, he essentially has about two decades left of solid golf because one thing about golfers is you, you can play till you're you know, on on Social Security and still be and still be in the hunt for many tournaments. The fact that he mm-hmm. now joins, I think it's Nicholas and Woods as the only guys to win three majors by the time you're 25. Is he primed to? Uh, I like what Sports Illustrated says. Is he primed to win the Masters next year? Uh, I, 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 I I mean it, it'll be tough to say because we still have the rest of the year to play until the season starts uh, in uh, in winter. So it's it, it, it's kind of hard to say when we're, you know, we're eight, nine months away that he is the favorite. But he has shown, although he did have that immortal, atrocious choke job a couple of years ago, but he has shown he has the game. Now because there was the, the talk when he went to Nike, he had, to, he had the adjustment to the new clubs. He went through the relative disappointment for somebody like him. He got back on track, now won the uh, the Open Championship. Tremendous man. I think that he's definitely a guy that now is going to be in the hunt, considered virtually in the hunt for, like, you know, Tiger Woods was not for – and even now people still think about it. You look at the betting line. It's, it's just still kind of ridiculous. It's almost like it's Tiger Woods against the field, like, now. And he hasn't won a major in years. So I think now Rory McIlroy is going to be that guy. He's going to help take the mantle, I think, of being the star of golf. And really, well, we got a lot of really talented players, you know, a lot of young, talented players on the way and on the path to stardom. Uh, so, and I think that the, the future for golf, you know, people always say, well, yes, we do need Tiger Woods. He's the guy that can draw the audience like nobody else can. But it's not like golf is not lacking for superstars right now. McElroy is that guy. Right. We had McElroy. Uh, Jordan Spieth's been popular in the past couple mm-hmm. of majors. Ricky Fowler got second, which was miraculous considering he was uh, Rookie of the Year a few years ago and then hasn't really done much since that. The converse, though, what happens to Tiger Woods now? Hasn't Like we said, hasn't won a major in many years. Strug- I mean, the last time he won a tournament was was last May. When I think mm-hmm. about the players, uh, what's up with Tiger now? What's he going to do? I think that this is, you know, we, you still saw the flashes of brilliant with a very strong first round, and then he completely fell off 
to where he had to bury 18 just to, just to make the cut at the uh, this past weekend. You know, I you don't want to count on Tiger Woods, and I because there's still times where again he shows the flashes of brilliance, and it you really don't want to count on that. And I still don't think I don't I think that people are proclaiming Tiger to be done. I think they're mistaken. Is he the t- most dominant player on the tour now? No, obviously not. But we also have to realize he is—he was hurt. He's now he's had issues with health over the last several years, of course. And then we also had the, the infamous uh, uh, sex scandal, that whole uh, shebang. But, um, but Woods, I still think, especially once he gets back healthy, He's still a guy that can win, and I still think he can win majors. It, will he get the Jack Nicholson? I don't know. I think for Tiger, what's going to be key for him, once he gets that that next major, because I do think he's got at least one more major. Uh, I think once he gets over the hump somewhere, then he'll you'll regain his confidence. I think he's lost of a, a lot, lost a lot of his you know famous confidence over the last few years. And really, the public perception of him has really been shattered a lot. But I still think Tiger Woods can still play, can still play at a high level. And who knows? Maybe he'll come out and win the PGA in, uh, in a couple of months. Who knows? I, I do not think Tiger is done, but I think his time of dominance is definitely done. Yeah, for Tiger Woods, it's interesting. Because like you said, Vegas odds still have him as one of the favorites. Consistently, the one of the favorites. Yep. Yet, uh, the, for him to win another major, it's going to have to be a f- either next year or a few years down the road, where he is so far out of the public domain, which obviously won't happen considering the millions and billions of dollars he gets in endorsement deals. But it's going to be one of those tournaments that he, he's so far out of uh, out of viewing eyes that this guy, yeah, he's literally going to have no shot to win because it is only his worst this tournament was only his worst tournament when making the cut so considering that he's almost 40 and still making the cut at majors is impressive I don't think Tiger Woods will win it again in a major just because like we mentioned uh, at the top of the show how we have so many young stars in golf how it's almost similar to the game of baseball in which you always have consistent waves of young talent gunning for your job but we've seen stranger things, uh, especially with golf. You know, who'd have thought Bubba Watson would have won Masters by now? That's right. All right, so we'll switch now to college football. As interesting yeah. talks, interesting talks appeared as SEC, Big Twelve, Conference USA, ACC, and all of the conference media days happened these past few weeks. But the common theme between all of them was almost like foreseeing into the crystal ball of the NCAA and what they're going to do with the proposed full price of admission scholarships. Basically, I think that college universities are going to cash in on the big sports, the men's basketball, the footballs, to give student-athletes more money as opposed to just room and board. Flo, we are not the talented and gifted student-athletes that we aspire to be when we were little, but what is your take on all this on sort of the future landscape of the – first of all, the scholarship and then of college athletics. I think that, you know, we've talked about this before. I generally in the past have not been a favor of players earning a salary. I don't think that 
that I think that they definitely should get competition at some point. They should be compensated for merchandise. They should get a cut of I think TV 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 deals. I think that's fair. And I think that you know ticket sales. These schools are making money off these kids, and the kids are basically not getting anything. And the thing is with the scholarship, that's something we've always talked about. The scholarship don't cover everything. It's not like you know you when you get a full ride. It covers everything. It covers most, but it doesn't cover at all. And there are some schools, like it was the, the quarterback at Ole Miss talked about, that there are definitely guys uh, that go to bed hungry, as Shabazz Napier uh, talked about. And people are like, oh, he's lazy. He's just not going to the roof. But, you know, so there's a meal plan or whatever they're on. It'll cover you for breakfast and lunch, but it won't cover you for dinner, which is kind of a name. You would think that they wouldn't cover you for lunch, but anyway. So there's definitely something coming. I think the scholarship idea, I think it's, I think it is a very good idea because at the very least, if you're giving them a full ride, it should be a full ride. Another thing that's interesting that was I've heard discussed, uh, there, uh, the Pac-12 discussed uh, transfers, and it, it was the uh, the idea with that. Now players should be allowed that it was proposed that there shouldn't be a year wait. To uh, to go anywhere. Now the problem I think with that is that then you're going to start seeing poaching of guys will start a small school and then a, a big school will need like a short-term fix at quarterback and then uh, for something like that and then they'll basically say come join us we'll give you a full ride and everything and then he'll immediately leave. So they talked about this on PTI. What I think would be a better idea is that you you can transfer immediately. Uh, school and play right away if you're going if you're going from like a power one of the power the power conferences if you're going outside of the power conferences from like going from the Pac-12 to the MAC or something like that. right you you have to stay stay out a year if you're going into a Big Five school but also you can go to a school and play right away if you the coach if your coach takes another job because coaches can go anywhere and virtually not have to pay anything. So I mm-hmm. think that there are definitely changes coming to college athletics, and I think it's—I think they're important because I think people realize, beyond of course whatever Mark Edmund tries to say, that there are <laughs> issues with the, what the status quo is. And I think that you know, I'm not saying you know things are going to change right away, but I do think that changes are indeed coming down the line. I think quite- it's interesting when you mention change because, of course, the NCAA they're still neck deep and all these lawsuits. So we probably won't see mm-hmm. something like this for the next, you know, three or four years. I mean, I'll just look how long it took for college football to get a playoff system. And it's That's only right. four with a committee. So it's interesting that we mentioned the transfers because the power five, or what they want to be called uh, in the future, is uh, division four. Don't know why, but huh. that, that's whatever, it's the NCAA wants to do that. <laughs> it's interesting because for the future, after after thinking about this, listening to several media days, and when Bill and when um, Bill Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12, was on Mike and Mike earlier this week, basically the, what this is going to affect, because obviously the fo- football playoffs are going to grow. College basketball, March Madness, is still going to be a billion-dollar entity with TV deals that we've yep. seen signed in the past few years. The one thing this is going to affect is the Olympic sports, the soccer, yeah, and especially here, at, especially here at, at American, the uh, the volleyballs and field hockeys. 
because what it's going to turn into now is a lot of these schools, I'm not saying immediately, but in about 20, 30 years' time, many of these even bigger schools, obviously not the, not the Stanfords and Texases, but, the other, but some of the schools are going to start cutting some of these programs. So uh-huh. what it's going to do is pigeonhole where the competition of our Olympic sports are going to go. Because obviously with, bas- with football, there's no Olympic sports, so they just go straight to the NFL and hope to yeah. make it there as a career. Basketball has a little leeway because they have world championships and, and other leagues in Europe. But for some of these sports, what you're going to see, and this is sort of FNAC Radio's uh, prediction into the future, is you're going to see a lot of these sort of unaffiliated academies all over the country. And uh, an example is what Oak Hill is to high school basketball and what IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida is to the soccers and baseballs. You're going to see a lot of these sort of privately owned and funded academy systems for the sports like track and volleyball because it's easy to say, you know, if you're not good enough to make a Power 5 conference because they have no soccer program, who's to say that we can easily pay you because we're not NCAA sanctioned and and then just educate and develop you full time? I think that's where college sports is going to go if something isn't immediately fixed because I like the idea of the full of the full price of admission but the only problem is and what it always is the problem is what's going to happen it's going to be a waste of money in basketball unless Adam Silver does something with this one and done rule because if it, if they're wasting millions and millions of dollars for a kid that's just going to go literally for seven months of college then it's almost seemed worthless at least in football it's it's feasible because a lot of schools now are coming from the 1AA ranks and joining conferences like the WAC and Conference USA and the Mountain West because they want a piece of that pie to possibly get into the college football playoffs. But basketball is when you open a whole other can of worms unless something's done on the NBA side. Yeah, I agree 100%. So uh, that being said, uh, college football is only a month away. And that, any other big storylines that you're looking forward to in the, in the realms of college football? I think definitely the big storyline now in your, your ear is, uh, is definitely, you know, you talked about the college football playoffs. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like one of the, the big talking points, the SEC, say for last year, has been the dominant picture in the later years of the BCS. And that's because they've been able to take advantage of being in the strongest conference in college football. But now, that conference, it's going to be harder for potentially a team from the SEC, especially in the year when you look at the SEC. Auburn should be very good, but, you know, they, they, they weren't a perfect club last year. And even though they did come very close to winning the national championship, Alabama loses McCarran, so they've got quarterback issues that they haven't had in a while because McCarran was their quarterback virtually since Bear Bryant was there. Uh, LSU has got a new quarterback. Uh, there's a lot of schools in the SEC that you would think at the top. You know, Florida still, you know, they're in the building process. So you look at the SEC, they may not get a team in the playoff altogether, and that uh, is going to be, it'll be key, the latter year uh, part of that SEC schedule, especially the SEC championship game, because that could be a game that decides who gets in and potentially who does not get in because we have this new system 
where the selection committee. And also, speaking of the SEC, I love that bit that, um, what's his name, Nick Saban was talking about uh, basically trying to come up with an excuse for how the team got smoked against in the Sugar Bowl against uh, Bob Stute in Oklahoma. Because now he was like, oh, our players wasn't, you know, they weren't looking into it. They were a little dejected, which makes sense. You saw a similar thing against, you know, them again when they got smoked by uh, definitely an inferior, but a still strong Utah club in the Sugar Bowl a few years ago. It, it's, But it's still, you know, you can come give up with all the excuses you want. You still got smoked in the Sugar Bowl yeah. by Oklahoma. So, but, you know, this is the usual what comes out of media day, media days. There isn't a huge amount of actual stories. You get, you get coaches talking smack. You get them talking up their clubs. Steve Spurrier turns into a star every single year because he's yeah, golden. Especially, to, especially taking shots at Davo Sweeney. Absolutely. You know, that guy, you know, the shame he's never retired because he would just be gold on television. But he, every year... Steve Spurrier, when it's SEC Media Days, he's always he's always up to something, and it's always tremendous. Two two storylines I'm looking forward to, other than the college football playoff, is yeah. what does it do to the teams that are in new conferences now? Because obviously, uh, you've got the Big Ten going with the shakeup, featuring UMD and Rutgers, Notre right. Dame. I, I think Notre Dame is in the ACC this year. With the conference well, realignment, they're technically not in the ACC. They're just they have a deal with the ACC to where they, for football, they play a bunch of teams every year from that conference. They're still they're technically not in a conference yet, but they're they're closely aligned with the ACC and they're still eligible to get into the um, uh, the football uh, college football playoff. Right. I would not be surprised this year if if a team from sort of the second-tier conferences makes the college football playoff. Because you'll always have that one team that will run the table and go undefeated. And, of course, yep. the selection committee will always favor that because it's it's a story. It'll get generate tons of, of media revenue. So that's one thing I'm excited for is who is the unexpected team to come out of nowhere to make the playoff. And the second thing is who will be the uh, likely conference winners? Obviously, like you mentioned Alabama with no A.J. McCarron. And so they'll be relying mostly on their thousands of running backs they have. So what goes on in the SEC? Big 12 is also wide open because you clearly have Oklahoma. But then you have Charlie Strong starting his new regime down in Austin. So Uh what sort of landscape does he bring to a Texas team that always expects stuff every year? And then you have the Pac-12 with UCLA. Did so well last year. What's USC going to do? If you know, a small school like Arizona State or Arizona can beat down an Oregon team, those are the two things I'm looking forward to for college football. And finally, before we head off to a commercial break, one thing we haven't talked about in many, many months, which resumes this weekend at the Brickyard, is the Northwest Brick Cup Series. First off, I want to give a shout-out to Bubba Wallace winning the showdown, the second annual showdown at Eldora. <laughs> it's his second win of the year, and he is him and Matt Crafton are the and uh, the only three drivers, are the only two drivers to win a truck race not Kyle Busch. But for the Sprint Cup, uh, this is one the last hurrah that ESPN has, and it goes to the Brickyard. 
And with the, uh, as we mentioned on BFlow360.com's article about Eric Amarola winning the rain-delayed Coke Zero 400, is this a weekend we could see someone come out of nowhere and kiss the bricks? I think absolutely. Uh, we saw it a couple years ago when Paul Menard got his first career win, beating your boy Jeff Gordon when he went on fuel mileage. Indianapolis is the kind of track to where, and I think I think we agree on this, it's it's pretty terrible for NASCAR racing because it's just not built for that kind of racing. But it's yeah. a track that rewards track position, and usually the racing, it fans out, so you don't get that many cautions. All the tires are blowing up, and they have to throw the yellow every 10 laps. But, and we all remember that's fiasco. But I think that absolutely, you can see a guy, you know, gambling on tires, you get track position, gambling on fuel mileage. I think you could definitely see that. And I think you're seeing that now basically everywhere. Even at yeah. tracks where, you know, you, the tra- track position doesn't matter as much or you need the fresh tires or, you know, playing on gas doesn't always be great. But you're seeing that everywhere now. And I think, honestly, that's a good thing for the sport. And I think it's a good thing for NASCAR that guys are going for broke basically to get the win because this should, it should be a sport that rewards winning. So I think, I think you definitely, it's a great opportunity, I think, for some teams. You know, they had the last weekend off to come in, uh, play around a little bit, you know, try and sh- shoot the odds. And sometimes, you know, it comes up seven and you win. So I, th- I think you absolutely could see it. Right, and looking at drivers, notable drivers that don't have a win, who do you think is the guy to make the gamble? I will start and say I would not be surprised if either Tony Stewart or your boy Casey Kane wins this weekend because Chevy's, the Brickyard is, this will be, I think, their 20th year, 21st race since uh, Jeff Gordon won the inaugural back in 94. And the only guys in different manufacturers to win was Bobby Labonte in a Pontiac, Ricky Rudd in a Ford, and uh, Bill Elliott in a Dodge. Other than that, every single driver that has won has been in a Chevy. And with Stuart Haas Racing being sort of as good, being sort of consistent as they have this year, and Hendrick Motorsports always doing well at the Brickyard, those mm-hmm. are my two drivers to punch their uh, their win ticket into the chase. I could see your, I could see your blows boy, Casey Kane getting the win. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would definitely enjoy that. He, he, it's been a disappointing year for you. He's been very all over the place. I like your, uh, pick of, um, Stuart. Cause Stuart really has not had a str- that strong of a year. And that's definitely a track that he can win. But I'll, I'll tell you a guy that could be a guy to look out for. And he's been, you know, he's been pretty impressive in his rookie year. How about Kyle Larson? He's run strong at a number of tracks this year. So there are times where he hasn't had good luck, but he always seems to get involved in the race somehow. So I can very well see him, you know, having a strong car. I can see him taking a gamble at a couple uh, side tires, and I can see somebody like him who's one of those guys right on that borderline in terms of points, and but they don't have a win because I don't think you're going to get the 60 wins. And, you know, you'll have a lot of guys, and you have guys that are in the top ten uh, without a win. So I think a guy like a, like a Larson, maybe a Clint Boyer, a, a Truex, maybe a couple of, uh, well, one until you other one to Chevrolet. I forgot about that. But, you know, and Kenseth still hasn't won, and he was tremendous last year. There are really a number of guys that I could see, you know, pulling together a good run and then securing themselves a chase position. 
It's interesting. We're looking at the NASCAR standings right now. The 16 guys, the, the, the notables that don't have a win but would still make the uh, the chase, I guess, obviously not on wins but on points. You have Kenseth, Ryan Newman, who was last year's winner, Boyer, and then you have I think you have Bob Larson and Dylan and Paul Menard, all in the mix of guys that are uh, so desperate looking for a win. What about Brad Keselowski? Has has won that has won in the nationwide. He's won you know, the two of the last three races. Is this something that is, is sort of good luck flow that's going to run out sometime soon, or is he primed to keep winning more races until Richmond? I think that he and both Logano have had tremendous, uh, tremendous years, especially running very well. Penske is on a roll right now. Of course, Logano had a strong car at Loudoun, and he got taken out by Morgan Shepard, and, and that's a fiasco. But I think, I think that, you know, Kessel, I, I had a feeling Keselowski was going to come back and have a strong year. And I can very well see him continuing. He is one of the strong – he is a champion, no less. And the cars have been good virtually everywhere. And if you have strong cars, you're going to be in the mix one way or the other. And I, don't, I honestly don't see Keselowski really slowing down all that much. Right. And uh, Crown Royal presents the John Wayne Walding 400 at the Brickyard is this Sunday, July 27th, 1 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. We'll take a quick break when we come back. Flo and I will talk about the Ray Rice suspension from the NFL Shout-outs to American University and a little U.S. soccer news. Stay with us. You're listening to Fanatic Radio on Block Talk Radio. It's Fanatic Radio. Get ready to break the pain! <laughs> it's the reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's cars. Fanatic Radio on Block Talk Radio.
made the decision to give you this big fancy studio is an idiot. The reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's cars. Fanatic Radio on Blog Talk Radio. Listen, this white boy a monster, where he re at? I'm dexterous in the lab, where DD at? You see he's back and killing them rap cats, concealing them facts that we really didn't Back here on Fanatic Radio, my guardian Ben Sparks. Uh, intro music, shout out to Marlon Serker, uh, former coach, uh, team, uh, former player of mine on the AU Club basketball team, and the uh, and now a newly good friend of Flo's. That last song, Rolling in the Deep by Adele, uh, Little anniversary on this day, so about three or four years ago, she surpassed Amy Winehouse for the most grossing debut album in UK his UK music history. Flow, lover of Adele. Yeah, you know, I, honestly, I don't have any of her on my iPod, which is kind of sh- it seems kind of shameful when I have Pitbull on my iPod. But yeah, I think uh, Adele, uh, I like her stuff. Uh, I think she's good. I know we've played her on the show before. I, I remember when uh, the first year I was ever on the show, I remember in, at the WVAU days you played this song coming out of commercial break. So uh, how about that for a memory? How about that? Yeah, because her, her album, uh, 21, debuted in 2011. And amazing, that's when we were uh, back at home base. But uh, once again, you can check out the uh, podcast on blogtalkradio.com, bflow360, or the podcast Everlasting on iTunes, including our 100th episode, which happened last week, a couple weeks ago. And you can also go back and listen to the riveting two-hour special of John Garter and myself host the 25 most shocking moments of the 2014 FIFA World Cup, which something ironic, we'll get to that later in the show. But before we talk about Ray Rice, I do want to give a couple of shout-outs to uh, my, now my alma mater, Flow School American University. Uh, several s- teams announced their schedules, including men's soccer, who plays notables of Mason, uh, my brother's school who made the NCAA tournament last year from the Atlantic 10. And then after that, Labor Day weekend, they get to go to Albuquerque, New Mexico to play in a tournament, and their very first game out of the gate is uh, UCLA, who has always been a perennial powerhouse in the world of college soccer, which features Leo Stoltz, who was a former teammate of my brothers at George Mason, and Larry Enjock, who played at Loyola, Maryland, the uh, newly school in the Patriot League last year, led the conference in scoring. In his very first year, I think he had a goals-to-game ratio of like 1.3. It was one of the highest in the nation. <laughs> and he didn't win Player of the Year, which that is That's why I cannot stand the Patriot League. But uh, best of luck to <laughs> them. Also, for all you AU alums listening, Alumni Day, Phil Reeves Day, is October 4th against Holy Cross, which should be good because Holy Cross is not that good. So the team that made the Sweet 16 last year, they play... One of the toughest schedules in the country. I don't know how good their RPI is at the top of my tongue. But some of their notables include Florida State and Marquette coming to Bender Arena over Labor Day weekend. Also, they'll play a scrimmage against Metropolitan University of Puerto Rico. Yeah. And then then amazingly, after that, they get to play (laughs) defending national champions Penn State and fellow Sweet 16 team Kansas up in Philly for 
a Villanova Classic. And lastly, it's the hockey team that made the NCAA tournament uh, for the first time in three years. They played a slate of games, you know, Old Dominion, Richmond. Phil Jacobs is September 21st against Princeton. But a very exciting one is how they close out the regular season. October 24th, their last their senior day is against Boston U, who will be yeah. headhunting for American because that's the team that the Eagles defeated in the Patriot League Championship to go to the NCAA tournament. And then the very next game, not even a week later, they get to go down to College Park and face the Maryland Terrapins. So there you go. That's your AUD. Shout-outs to, uh, shout to the Eagles, Barry Goldberg, Steve Jennings, Todd West, all the, uh, all the Eagles staff. But once again, Fanatic Radio rolls forward. And I want to start with some soccer news before we get to Ray Rice. First off, a very funny thing. We know now that several of the European clubs after the World Cup are coming over to America to sort of tune up for their preseason. The Premier League starts August 16th which we've been seeing some fantastic commercials on NBC Sportsnet featuring everyone in that commercial is someone that played in the World Cup, which makes me continuing to poke the MLS with a, with a stick saying, where are your commercials featuring the, uh, the stars of the MLS? But uh, a funny story was Louis van Gaal, who is, was the head coach of the Netherlands in the World Cup, now is the skipper at Manchester United, went on the record before they went on their U.S. tour saying he frowns upon it, he doesn't know why the club does it, he says he understands its exposure, but it's a very large risk for my players getting jet lag, thus leading to injury days before their season starts, which is in the second week in August. So he's frowning upon this this trip in which Man United goes from L.A. to Miami, all over the country. And their very first game into this little summer series, they defeated the L.A. Galaxy 7-0. So what do you make of that? I think that, you know, you got, it's a, uh, you know, um, what was that again? I'm sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. That head coach, basically, basically uh, head coach of Manchester United doesn't like the team going on USA tours yet because of injury, a risk of injury, and yet his team wins 7-0 and is in their first game out against the Galaxy. Well, I think that speaks to, A, how, you know, how uh, the, the MLS, uh, we talk about U.S. soccer, how the MLS is still not quite ready for prime time. And then, uh, you know, a team like Manchester United could come out, if, even if they got guys hurt and all the like, could come out and just completely cream a, uh, a, a solid MLS club as the uh, Los Angeles Galaxy, featuring the immortal Landon Donovan. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Ain't nobody got time for He shouldn't be roasting because he didn't play. In the World Cup, he should he, he should be fully well rested in the life, but who knows? Right, and fi- and finally, some last soccer news. This actually was proposed on Wednesday, of uh, Rob Heinemann, who is the CEO of a company, Sporting Club, which owns the MLS club, Sporting KC, is in the, is sort of in the works with the governor of Kansas. Sam Brownback. In talks of building a $75 million-plus national training and coaching development center, which hopefully will serve as the new home of USA Soccer. Still pending on approval, but Flo, what are your thoughts of having the home of U.S. Soccer in Kansas City, of all places? Well, I think that, you know, it does make sense in the fact that, you know, 
it's, it's in the heart of the country. It's uh, not that hard to access it from anywhere. It's not like, you know, yeah, you have to go all the way across the country. Usually, either way, you're either losing an hour or you're gaining two hours, so it's not that big of a difference. Okay, you know, Kansas, uh, Kansas City, Sporting KC, they've got a beautiful arena, which I obviously have never been to, but I hear it's tremendous. Got a solid, good transit port for uh, one of the uh, original MLS clubs. I got no problem with it. I think a new national training center is needed to take the next step to build on the gains that U.S. soccer has made. And I think that putting together something like this is uh, only a positive. Well, the thing is, uh, reading, uh, reading the article in the Kansas City Star, which uh, Klinsman has yet to comment on it, and he still and he still has to sort of vote and approve it, as well as Sunil Gelati, the president of the USA Soccer. The interesting thing about it is when it ultimately boils down to Klinsman's decision as being the coach, it's his sort of uh, final say of where the team trains. This is this uh-huh. is definitely what they're saying is, you know, Klinsman doesn't have to come to Kansas City every time the national team is set to go off and play a friendly somewhere. But it also, at the same time, it won't stop Klinsman from going over and training at the Olympic Center in Colorado Springs when they go play Mexico and Azteca, or when they go down to Miami when they set to face, you know, in El Salvador or Honduras in the humid climates of Central America. It's sort of, it's mostly for training uh, U.S. soccer officials and the youth teams, you know, U21 down to uh, as young as U15s. A chance to sort of be a, a mecca of U.S. soccer because their headquarters in Chicago no, there's no real feasible place for them to train. And Kansas City doesn't have to be the only option because the uh, the winters are very harsh up there, having uh, having experienced one firsthand. And also, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, because the United States doesn't really have a home base. It's a nice option. Interested to see if it, uh, if it, goes, if it goes to plan. It uh, is set to... It's only 10 minutes uh, across outside of... I-435 from Sporting KC Stadium, so it's about 30 minutes outside downtown Kansas City. It'd be great also when uh, when European clubs come through. They're able to sort of have a place. It looks like they're talking about building a hotel, so it's nice. It's glad that U.S. soccer is built upon what they uh, intended to, uh, to do after a very successful World Cup campaign. That's right. And now we, uh, we go to the NFL. Uh, featuring everyone's favorite, Ray Rice, of the Baltimore Ravens. Shout out to the, the DMV people. The Redskins will not be good this year. hate to break it to you. Uh, of course, I know <laughs> the NFC East, NFC East is so wide open. But uh, the big stories was a two-game suspension by Commissioner Roger Goodell on, on, a, uh, almost on, a, on a domestic viol- or a violent video that TMZ picked up that went viral featuring Rice and his wife. Now, in midst of, you know, the Von Miller and the pot smoking, Vic and the dog fighting, Cap- the, the tattoos of Aaron Hernandez, Ray, Roos, Ray, Ray Lewis's deer antlers, Flo, is Roger Goodell being too soft on Ray Rice for giving him just two games? I think absolutely. I think this is an absolute flat-out disgrace that he only got two games. Now, I understand there are some people that are making the claim, which I think is a legitimate argument. I do not rule it out offhand. 
that we don't know what happened in that elevator, which is true. There, there's, it's been reported that the police have that video, but it has not been released yet of whatever happened. But my, and then my counter to that is, well, something, A, clearly did happen, considering the fact that he ha- she was unconscious and he had to drag her across the floor out of the elevator. B, if, and if we don't know what happened, we're not certain of what happened, then why are they suspending him in the first place? I mean, I think the thing is a total, total joke. You look at the suspension. Robert Mathis is suspended four games for using a, a fertility product that his doctor allowed. Terrell Pryor, before ever playing it down, before even getting drafted in the supplemental draft, was suspended five games for a violation of accepting free tattoos in college. Uh, Josh Gordon is going to get suspended for a year for marijuana. And, and here, here's, here's a quote I'm going to provide from uh, Roger Goodell from 2010. The personal, quote, the personal conduct policy makes clear that I impose discipline even where the conduct does not release result in a conviction of a crime, as, for example, where the conduct imposes inherent danger to the safety and well-being of another person. He said that in the wake of Ben Roethlisberger being accused, not charged, not convicted. He was accused of sexual assault in 2010. Goodell suspended Roethlisberger six games, it was later cut down to four. How I, I don't understand where the league is coming off, giving him only a two-game suspension, because we know something clearly did happen. He was arrested. He, ha- he admitted he got accepted to a diversion. I think so. It wasn't going to go to court. He, he apologized for some of that, that pathetic, disgraceful uh, press conference that happened a couple months ago. Something clearly did happen. I think the NFL is, is taking such a pathetic line, quite frankly. And they really could have sent a hard message. Domestic violence, assault against women has no place in the NFL. I'm not saying, you know, kick rice out of the league. I'm not saying suspend them for years. I'm thinking six games, which is what Roethlisberger got, eight games. I mean, the fact that they gave him two games, it, I think it's a, a complete joke on the hands of the NFL and Roger Goodell, who are willing to go so far against drugs that they're going to suspend a player for using marijuana, which is not a performance-enhancing drug, suspend Josh Gordon likely for an entire year. Ray Rice gets two games. I think it's a complete joke. And quite frankly, I, Roger Goodell, in the wake of this, should be embarrassed. I, he probably isn't because he probably thinks, oh, we, we dropped, down, dropped the hammer on him. I think this is, quite frankly, I think this is an absolute disgrace by the NFL. Well, as, as such red tape after this, because other than off-field issues, because obviously you had James Harrison getting fined for the, uh, the frequent helmet-to-helmet contacts, and then the performance-enhancing guys, you know, Von Miller has served a lengthy suspension, yep. which made him miss majority of last year. Also, uh, and then you, and then you have um, Alden Smith, who uh, I think got, sus- got suspended for for gun charges, didn't he? Or yeah, he got- maybe carried a firearm into an airport or something, it was loaded or something <laughs> like that. 
But in, in terms of, of stuff off the field, it's almost like, like a shooting gallery at a carnival. You know, there's so many cases that the NFL should have, by now, a blanket rule of, of what our stances are on some of the issues that we've seen in the public domain, the Roethlisberger case, this Ray Rice case, the Vic dog fighting. It should be standard. Two games, you know, that's that's practically nothing considering there's 16 games in the NFL and no two games makes or breaks a season in the first two weeks. It's it's just, it's really surprising how much Roger Goodell sort of avoids this in a way, which when we saw on the NBA side, you know, in, in his first act as commissioner, Adam Silver bans Sterling for life, which is another topic we can get to later, mm-hmm. uh, especially of what happened uh, with head coach Doc Rivers just a few days ago. But with Ray Rice, it's the fact that the public had seen it and it went viral, and it's clear evidence. And like you mentioned, the joke of the press conference with him and his wife, it seems like Ray Rice is just getting off with a slap on the wrist, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, and I, I don't get understand why. Yes, I understand Ray Rice, beyond this, does not have a record. And, which, you know, that's legitimate. I'm not saying, again, you know, I'm not, nobody's saying that he should never be allowed to play again. But you have to send a message. And, I mean, if yep. you're dragging, we've seen the video. He's, and that's at the end of an incident. And, and here's what people don't understand. And you have Stephen A. Smith earlier today. And again, I don't hate Stephen A. I, I, I think of him in a somewhat higher regard than Skip Bale. That's not saying much. But Stephen A. goes on the air today and says, we need to... Now, I would never hit a woman and goes on and on and I think you never should. But he basically goes on to say the woman should not put herself in a position to say that. I mean, you got, you got to be absolutely... That is incomprehensible that you can come anywhere close to blaming a woman for a guy hitting her or let alone knocking her out unconscious. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, there couldn't be fault either way, but under no circumstances should a man ever hit a woman. It's, it's incomprehensible, and, I'm, and I thank the Lord that Michelle Beadle, who has been very uh, outspoken about this, and her and Desmond put together a great video. It's a bunch. They show how most of their uh, the folks on air basically said, "Yeah, the NFL did the right thing." There are a few people, and I'll give credit to all these people: uh, Michelle Beadle, who came out strong against it, and they crucified Stephen A. on Twitter. And then Stephen A. tried to defend himself and then basically made it worse. Yeah, Michelle Beadle. Colin Cowherd, who I've yeah, boy. show before. Skip Bayless said that this, this suspension should be more. Uh, Jamel Hill, um, uh, Dan Levitard. And it's just, it's, it's incomprehensible to me that this, that this action, again, we don't know what happened, but something did happen, or this wouldn't have been anything in the first place, and he wouldn't have been suspended at all if nothing had happened. And then he, he wouldn't have gotten out of gotten this out of court doing the division if something didn't happen. There was an assault of some kind. She didn't, you know, magically come unconscious and then he had to, have to drag her out of the, the elevator. Because clearly something did happen. The NFL had a strong opportunity 
because there have been issues before with NFL players and domestic abuse. The NFL could have sent a strong message, this is not welcome in this league. If this happens, there will be a uh, significant penalty for it. They failed here. And I think that Roger Goodell, who said in the Roethlisberger case, his job is to protect the shield and uphold the integrity of the NFL. He has categorically failed to do that in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And the two games that Ray Rice is missing, uh, Bengals and Steelers. And so then other than that, he returns to play the Browns, Panthers, Buccaneers, among teams uh, not of playoff contention anytime soon. So it's almost like a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I'm surprised that he didn't set the tone, especially that it's happened before. Because now, because already Goodell's been under more criticism than the guy needs for this whole concussion thing. Out the NFL is still continuing to fight that. And mm-hmm. in the Jonathan Vilma case, the Bounty Gate, it's almost like he flip-flops on certain issues, which um, is, uh, is far-fetched for me and really is, is crazy. Uh, quick shout-outs for baseball. The uh, Hall of Fame in uh, class... Coming in, featuring Maddox, Tom Glavin, the Big Hurt, Frank Thomas, Joe Torre, Bobby Cox, and Tony LaRussa. Big names, uh, guys with a lot of good baseball history. Also, next week, Flo and I will talk about the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, in Shrinese, including the Strahan Sap Beef. We'll be watching that with bated <laughs> breath to see if that escalates out of control anytime soon. But um, before we get to our top fives, what are your thoughts on Clippers coach Doc Rivers saying he will leave if Donald Sterling still remains as owner, because considering he technically still is the owner, uh-huh. uh, even though the NBA is trying to drive him out with, uh, with, with countless lawsuits. That, you know, Rivers is sending a strong message that, yeah, the, the, the league, nobody wants Sterling out of the league more than the league, so they can get past this and move on. But Sterling... For the by the grace of God is going to litigate this to hell, and yep. so it's just. A, and I agree, and I applaud. I applaud himself, LeBron James. I think Doc Rivers is sending the absolute right message here, saying this is this is outrageous. We're not going to play for this guy if he's still owning the team. I think they're set now. I I, I do wonder how something like that will actually go. I'm not denying. Uh, that Rivers will carry this out. I wonder how that will work when he would actually leave the team, would he take a leave of extended leave of absence? But I think that, you know, the his words, I think, strike a strong core that we're not going to put up with somebody like this still in control of the team, no matter why it is or how it happens. And I think it's a strong message that Doc Rivers is absolutely right to say. Yeah, it's interesting, like you said, if he does carry it out, because I think the worst-case scenario would be he would take a leave of absence, because he's not just going to drop everything and leave. He's built too much in in the few years he's been there with the Clippers, which involved a trade just to get him at the beginning, which originally was signed off by Sterling. So mm-hmm. Sterling was, And so he was one of the big reasons to signed off to say, yeah, he can come here and coach the team. I wouldn't say he'd go as far as quitting the team, because that would just send everyone up in arms. And I don't think Doc Rivers wants to leave because he has a good team. He's the third best team in the West. But, uh, yeah, we'll keep involved with, uh, with that as well. And we got the funk. Oh, well, uh, glory be, the funk's on me, Bobby. Keep that funk alive. Keep that funk alive. Mm-hmm. Well, it's 1975, and I'm just be keeping the funk alive. Ooh. 
Alright, it's now time for our FNAF Radio Summer Series. Keeps rolling on with our, our, our summer segment, Top 5 Best and Worst. If you look back in the uh, FNAF Radio archives, we've had the best and worst shows on sports shows on television. Last week, we had the best and worst play-by-play broadcasters and television and now analysts on the games. This week, we go a little broader by doing the best and worst stadiums. Arenas slash ballparks, what have you, uh, putting together some of the worst stadiums. It's kind of it was kind of hard because you know a lot of these stadiums that you wanted to sort of bash have been renovated or look significantly better than what they did before. But for our top five worst stadiums, it technically still isn't. It technically isn't in use now, but it's straight up dump number. Uh, Number five has to be the Pontiac Silverdome. Yeah, uh, it, it, especially now, based on what uh, has just transpired, and it, it kind of shows the issues that come. We have these old stadiums that get, you know, teams leave for newer, brighter, brighter stadiums, and then what happens? It costs so much to maintain it, and now it's just basically the place has gone to hell. It was always what was funky about the the, uh, the Silverdome is that they built it on cheap land. Actually, the original project, I believe, was also to have a stadium for the, uh, for the Pistons, which ended up, the Pistons ended up playing there for many years, including the bad year, uh, the, um, the, uh, a lot of the bad boys run before they built the Palace in Albert Hills was at the Silverdome in the, the mid to early, late 80s. So and it, was, it was interesting with that and with Auburn Hills that those stadiums, are, like, built way out in the suburbs of Detroit. I mean, Pontiac, it's, it's a little bit of a hike. Auburn Hills is a little closer, if I recall correctly. But those places were, you know, a hike, uh, really, to get to. And now you look at the Pontiac Silverdome, it's just it's just depressing to look at. Yeah, there's currently uh, court cases going on of the, of the new owners wanting to auction off everything that's that's inside that stadium, you know, glassware, all electronic equipment. And, of course, when you look at it, when you look at Detroit Free Press coverage of it, the ceiling has been collapsed. It's, you know, all the AstroTurf is mildewing. The stadium just looks like it should be demolished. I don't know why they would keep it. Leads us to the number four worst stadium. It was uh, recently built, but only for four games. It is the, uh, the World Cup Stadium in Manaus. You know, I, I don't understand uh, when you look at Brazil, and we we talked about this way before people really picked up on this issue. They're playing, they built a stadium. Now, Manaus has like a million two people, but it's also the most cool. It's in the middle of the the the, the stinking Amazon. It's not an easy place to get to. The stadium was a mess because it's hard to repair it because they had to carry things on boats and barges yeah. just to replace because you can't really drive. They have to fly there or take a boat. I don't know what they were thinking, and there's not going to be a suitable team really that will fill anywhere close to uh, anywhere near even half capacity of that stadium. So I, I, I couldn't have a, uh, any clue why they built it in the first place. And not only that, but it was only four games were played in it. You know, 64 games in the World Cup. More games were played at the American on in Rio than in this stadium. And, of course, even despite you know not selling out the stadium, 
because it was so remote to get to, the city it's in has been issued a flooding and NPR is a segment of, you know, people living in planks and not having food or clean water. But then also the fact that the field wasn't even up to up to, you know, snuff for the game. For a World Cup game, one of the world's biggest events, as brown patches and then the humidity had more injuries or uh, you know problems with cramping and fatigue than any other World Cup stadium. Now, uh, World Cup Stadium number four, number three, an interesting one. It's still around. It is the host of the Toronto Blue Jays and the occasional NFL game. It is the Rogers Center in Toronto. Yeah, uh, never been there. Although I hear that uh, to my good, our good friend, uh, my good friend uh, Jeff Benham's program was actually in Toronto, and he said that the prices at Rogers Center for a beer are even more ridiculous than in American stadiums. Uh, he, he provided the example of beer at City Field on the Mets. 950. How much does the same beer cost in Toronto? 1250. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, even that alone, I've never been there because I've never left the country. But and I hear Toronto's a fun town. You know, basically it's an American city. But, I mean, 12.50 for a beer? you got to be kidding me with that. I had the honor of going uh, and seeing. I didn't go inside. I saw it last year. I went to Toronto for a weekend with uh, with my aunt and uncle, uh, taking one of my one of two vacation days from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's it's in a great place. in a great part of the city. It's next door to the CN Tower. It's by, you know, the train station. It's by the highway. It's, it's it's very easy to get to, and in the heart of downtown, as, as a lot of stadiums should be. Uh, the only problem is it's probably one of the few Major League Baseball parks to not be updated in a way. It's almost back, you know, when it's when when it was the you know like when the Sky Dome was around, because it's a it's one of those stadiums that can expand and and uh, and condense. And you got that awkward roof. It, it's it's a lot of it's just old. It's it's sort of pseudo updated, but it's very old. And as as your boy Jeff mentioned, yeah, prices are very ridiculous, considering uh, you know they're the only you know Canadian baseball team left in uh, in Major League Baseball. And you know, the Toronto Blue Jays is doing very well this year. But the stadium, if any stadium needed an, you know, an upgrade, it was that. Or it could be our number two stadium of Sun Life Stadium, which was formerly Dolphin Stadium, which was formerly Pro Player Stadium in Miami Gardens. Yeah, uh, what's interesting, and, and I like that you mentioned Miami Gardens, because with these venues, they always say, ah, well, welcome to Miami, or welcome to Washington, D.C., when it's really, you know, uh, in Miami. It's in Miami Gardens, which uh, another place I've never been to. Uh, apparently, it was a fiasco of a baseball stadium, because it was... It, well, retractable state or uh, not retractable multi-purpose stadiums were, I mean, they're an idea that costs money, but they ended up being mediocre stadiums for football and baseball. I mean, there's, there's a reason why there's only one of them left that does both so right now, and that stadium is a complete joke. But you look at uh, uh, Dolph uh, Sun Life Stadium, which has had a 18 uh, million name changes. There was one point it went from Dolphin Stadium. The Dolphin Stadium, or vice versa. I mean, come on. But it's a stadium. It's in the middle of the boonies. It's like in a, really in the middle of nowhere. It's not even that close to Miami. And 
It's just, you know, the disaster for the Marlins. It was a terrible ballpark. And the problem with that is it's an outdoor park in Miami, and especially for the baseball teams, the Marlins. The, my, Florida is brutal, and re, it's really the weather is a mess, especially because it can get really hot. And again, it would be really muggy, and then you have the afternoon thunderstorms. And so uh, complete, complete mess in the ballpark. Uh, I, I think they're renovating it a little bit for uh, football to bring stands in closer, but I don't know if it's a ballpark I really want to go to anytime. Yeah, well, I think the, um, the Marlins play at that new stadium now, mm-hmm. which is the one of um, with, the, with the crazy Flamingo Fountain. Uh, their football <laughs> stadium where the Dolphins play, I think is one of the reasons why they didn't get the Super Bowl, which is why they gave it to uh, to San Francisco and Houston, because I think that stadium, it's, it, you know, ever since the Orange Bowl got torn down, this has been the sole purpose for for every event. At least in Dallas, you got Cowboys Stadium, you have the Cotton Bowl, and for the soccer games, you have FC Dallas Stadium. Or even, you know, certain certain, you know, high school stadiums that could serve the that could serve the void as well. Miami though is the only like feasible stadium they have. And when you have like leak problems some of the time because it's been so eroded by the weather, it's it's pretty bad. Knowing that you're hosting an NFL, you know, franchise and bidding for the Super Bowl and they could easily just go to Tampa or Orlando. But which brings us speaking of the NFL, it brings us to our worst stadium of all the O.Co. Coliseum, home of the <laughs> Oakland A's and the Raiders. Yeah, as I mentioned, we're still the only ballpark uh, that is still in use for both uh, the NFL and Major League Baseball. And the thing is about was really interesting about that stadium. It was said to be actually be a decent baseball stadium before 1995. Because even though it has enormous foul territory, it had a great view of the uh, the Rolling Hills. Uh, I forget what those up there, and maybe the St. Quentin Mount or something like that. And it wasn't obviously a pitcher's park, but it was a solid park to watch again. Then Al Davis comes back to Oakland. They build yes. this uh, Mount Davis, which is a complete monstrosity of luxury <laughs> boxes and just outrageous uh, seats in what is center field. And so now you have a ball player. You've ruined the, it for the A's. And now it's just disgusting. You have the talks about the raw sewage. I mean, it's mm-hmm. terrible for football as well. You still have guys going through the dirt and the, when yes. the field are still going on, which we love when that happens because it's just awful. So I think that uh, definitely it's, it's obvious that both the A's and the Raiders need a new ballpark. Uh, Navy Stadium, they're not going to be making much progress, but it has to happen because it's just it's a fiasco what that ballpark has become. Well, the fact that there's – the reason why it's our worst stadium is the fact that the NFL team still plays in there. And at least the, the 49ers were smart and built Levi Stadium, which hosts, you know, Super Bowl 50, which congrats yep. to them. And I've seen renderings, and it looks, it's going to look fantastic. But the fact that the Raiders – Ever since they left L.A., the team has been you know mediocre except for that one Super Bowl run. The ownership has been a fiasco. Their draft picks have been a fiasco. You know the only reason 
why it, it isn't a blackout is because the Raiders uniforms are black, so obviously the silver and black is the reason why the NFL hasn't blacked out the stadium, unlike in Jacksonville. But the fact that an NFL team is still playing it, and as you mentioned, that's that's the reason why I started laughing, because you love the shot, the great shots of CBS, you know, and the when Peyton Manning goes to visit the Raiders, and you got you got the the teams running through you know the infield, which is hilarious considering it's 2014 and they're still playing on a baseball field. I mean, the Athletics are doing great this year, and and we talked about it last year on Fanatic Radio's MLB mid midsummer report that they're you know pretty much primed to make the playoffs because of consistency in our boy Billy Bean. But the Raiders, though, that that is in fact the NFL is you know, the most popular league in the in the country. Has all this, all this enthusiasm to try to bring a team back to LA with you know Farmers Insurance Stadium that probably will never get built, and then you have the Raiders, which every time, every time there's a, a, a talks of moving an NFL franchise, it's the Jaguars to London or the Raiders to LA. So in the, o, not the O.co Coliseum is, is bad, and the fact that O.co is also was the name of Oracle Arena now where the Warriors play is. Yep. is hilarious. And now we go to our top five best stadiums. Now this we had, we could have, it's basically it's not just obviously the best, the most you know, high-tech advanced stadiums because then it would mostly just be NFL stadiums or whatever FIFA throws together at the last minute. But it's sort of a mix of fan-friendly experiences, a memorable moment, and also great venues that you want to watch on television. Uh, I don't know, making, making the list, you had to take all sports into account. So, quick, some quick honorable mentions uh, featuring Flo's Pack, Lambeau Field. The only downside is obviously the weather, but that sort of makes it what it is. But you can also add, you know, the new Soldier Field. Looks all right. Um, in terms of, you know, stadium technology, give shout-outs to Cowboys Stadium for the, their huge screen. Also, MetLife Stadium, considering what old Giant Stadium was. But uh, the top five stadium... And you may disagree with with me on this, but it has to be Madison Square Garden in uh, in New York City. In terms of everything, pomp and circumstance, uh, it's a, it's self-proclaimed name, which I know you like, Flo. Uh, absolutely, as the uh, world's most famous arena, which is of course every and the nickname it gave to itself. Now I'll, I'll give Madison Square Garden that it, it is a famous venue. It's been around forever. Although the thing is. Uh, there only been like three titles total in it for you know for such a venue, so it's not exactly how it brands. You can make a legitimate case that it's most famous as uh, as a concert venue or various other event venue, and so I, and honestly, they didn't do a big renovation. I haven't been to Madison Square Garden at least. Uh, I think it was like first or second grade. The last time I went to a Knicks game, I, I don't even remember who they played. I don't remember anything about the game except I remember I was there. And so, all, all, you know, all your Madison Square, Square Garden credit. It is a famous arena. I'm sure it's nice. But, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I don't see the appeal that other people see, but I do get that it definitely has its appeal. But I think it's also part of the fact you pick that arena up, you put that in, I don't know, uh, Cincinnati. It's not. It's not the same. But I get. I get where the appeal of it, and I get why it is such a legendary venue. Which I'll give credit. It is a you know a big time venue. When people talk about the garden, 
or uh, or MSG. So, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just a hater, which I kind of am. But well, you also you also are, are close to it. Coming coming from someone who's from Texas, never been there. It's always one of those like I wouldn't say it's like you know the mecca of sports, but it's like going to Oz. You want to go to it just to see. It. <laughs> Because you see it on TV, and it's obviously not the Emerald City, but it's in the, the heart of Manhattan, the biggest city in America, and and it's it was home of you know boxing matches and Led Zeppelin's final U.S. tour, you know Billy Billy Idol and, and his concerts, and then you have you know Patrick Chewing and Mark Messier, and then nowadays you got Carmelo Anthony and Lundquist. And then he also, it was also a regional site for the NCAA tournament, which was ruined by the NCAA's, you know, stationary courts, which looked like something you could buy from Home Depot. But nevertheless, Madison Square Garden is number five. Number four is a special one because in terms of international uh, fandom, it's, uh, it's an interesting arena because it now also has some NFL, times, or NFL ties. It is uh, Wembley, the new Wembley Stadium in London, England. Now, for those that don't know it, uh, it's the home of the English football national team. Usually, the, and usually the site of most of their friendlies when, when they welcome teams from, from from international clubs. It's the site of the FA Cup, which is uh, England's you know oldest football uh, trophy. And speaking of football, it's also hosted a few NFL games over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know it doesn't get any bigger for soccer than Wembley. You just say that one word, you know, everyone knows it is a big deal. So I think that, you know, obviously, yeah, never. And actually, a lot of these venues on this list I haven't been to, but alas, uh, you know, you talk about, and it's been a solid football venue. They draw, they've drawn strong crowds, London for it. And, um, well, really, yeah, I mean, Wembley, of course, the original Wembley was an iconic venue. I realize that even though this one was uh, very expensive and of great expense uh, in London across the but Wembley is still just a huge deal and uh, a great venue all around. Yeah, in fact, just internationally, most people, you know, because they, they know where, what it is. I mean, you can easily put Yankee Stadium up there because it's, it's like the old Yankee Stadium, the new Yankee Stadium. Is it worse because it's, you know, tons of home runs taking away from what, Many New Yorkers loved about the old Yankee Stadium, but nevertheless, Webley Stadium number four, number three. Speaking of ballparks, um, this one you can pretty much insert any famous ballpark: Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park, or Wrigley Field. Take your choice. Uh, the the figure the figures was Yankee Stadium. I miss the original. I don't love the new Yankee Stadium. I think it's a good ballpark. It's definitely really nice, but it doesn't have the same feel. It's like you know the crowd was always rocking. And going nuts at the old Yankee. But the new Yankee, it's because you have so many of those really expensive seats behind home plate that go unsold because the tickets are so expensive. The crowd energy largely is not there. And I've never, I would love to go to a ball and do a game at uh, Fenway Park where Wrigley was celebrated its uh, uh, centennial, uh, anniver- uh, centennial uh, year earlier this year. Th- those are definitely. Uh, Two legendary ballparks, and they, you know, they have the fact that you know, friendly confines. It's you know, it's Yawkey Way for Fenway, and friendly confines for Wrigley. So I think that you may want to, even though it's a Yankees fan, 
longtime Yankees fan like myself and a New York guy. But you look at, you know, there's other two, and I think you may have to lean more toward those, even though I haven't been there. I would certainly love to go to either of them. I've been. I've never been to Fenway. Never been to Yankee Stadium. I've stood outside and seen this sign at Wrigley, which is very cool uh, considering both Fenway and Wrigley are over a hundred years old. Knowing that baseball is our national pastime and has been played since you know the dawn of man, it's it's interesting to see that the two of the, the two you know stadiums are frankly still intact. My, you know, modern renovations here and there, but the fact that you have the Ivy at Wrigley Field and the Green Monster at bought at the Fenway Park. It's it's iconic now because it sets the bar because every stadium wants to build, you know, a wall with, with plants on it or a, a giant wall that no one can hit a home run over. Because now every time something like that is built, it's saying, well, here's one that's better and older and has a lot of tr- esteemed tradition. So for baseball fans, definitely those. Uh, number three with either Fenway Park, Yankee Stadium, or... Wrigley. Number two is uh, something Flo and I very much love. Interesting that we made this list, but no, it is not interesting that it made this list, cause it, considering it's going to be hosting college football games. It is Bristol Motor Speedway in Tennessee. I mean, you know, you're talking about NASCAR. I mean, they're definitely, you have Daytona, you got Talladega, but Bristol, you know, they proclaim it as the last great coliseum. You know, it's speed, it's grindy, it's really the, sort of the best racing NASCAR has guys are beating on each other, spitting each other out. You know, I guess Dale Earnhardt wanted to rattle Terry Labonte's cage a little bit while he's getting showered with booze in the 90s. So, Bristol has always been a place that is a huge, a legendary spot for NASCAR as Bruton Smith has really built out the stadium, literally moved the mountains to uh, expand the seating, and now it is known as uh, really one of the great venues to go and see a race and get some really wild racing. Because, you know, who knows? Maybe you'll get a fight or two. Yeah, because um, even the fact that we mentioned that there are many NASCAR tracks that could be, that are special. Obviously, this yep. weekend at the Brickyard, because of tradition, not a good NASCAR track, not really fan-friendly because it's so big. Daytona, the same way, even though they've been through some great renovations, you know, pack racing it may not be appealing to some. But for Bristol, it's, it's the fact that any nosebleed you sit in, you can basically see the entire track. Something always going on. The fact that their fall race is just called the Irwin Tools Night Race. No one knows how long it is. It's just a night race. And as Flo mentioned, it is you know, a Dale Earnhardt wrecked. We've seen uh, Flo's boy Rusty Wallace win. We've seen him get in fights with Jeff Gordon. We've seen Jeff Gordon push Matt Kenseth. We've seen Tony Stewart throw his helmet at Matt Kenseth. <laughs> the fact that all these events happen at one track twice a year is uh, is remarkable. Because and now they're going to be hosting college football games. The fact that you'll bring fans from Tennessee because you know they could easily play a game at Rocky Top because it's one of the biggest stadiums in the country, let alone college football in the SEC. The fact that they agreed to play a football game inside a NASCAR track is a win-win for both sports fans and uh, and uh, the people and Bruton Smith and the people running these games uh, alike. Which brings us, speaking of uh, and the fact that it's also called the last great Coliseum, that is fantastic. Because you see many of these, these stadiums uh, have self-proclaimed names, but it, it is a Coliseum. Or it's like it's, a, it's the one place where a bull is in a china shop. 
just go to a NASCAR race there. The number one, <laughs> I, one of the number one best stadium uh, was the host of last year's uh, college football championship game in the, heart of, in the heart of beautiful Pasadena. It is the Rose Bowl, or as the Spanish call it on the uh, Hispanic channels, Estadio de Rose Bowl. <laughs> I mean, you really can't beat that. God, God bless the, uh, the, the Spanish uh, lingua uh, broadcast. But, you know, you talk about the Rose Bowl. And even if you take out the fact that UCLA plays there, and I like UCLA. I like them a whole lot more than SC. I got UCLA and all that shit. But you just look at the Rose Bowl. For so many years, the Rose Bowl would basically it would host the Rose Bowl. That was it. Host a couple Super Bowls, including uh, uh, the uh, the famous Michael Jackson uh, uh, halftime performance in the early '90s. Uh, but you you think about the Rose Bowl, you think college football, you think the Rose Bowl. It's the home of the granddaddy of them all. It's in, it's an old stadium modeled after the Rose Bowl. It opened uh, almost a hundred years ago. Uh, well, not quite not quite that much. But it's I think still, 19, you know, 1929. Yeah, it's built built in the twenties. Uh, you know, it's still a beautiful stadium. It's a harken back to the old days, and it is a it is an absolute classic and a gem. And, you know, you think of college football and, you know, you can definitely think of, you know, Tiger Stadium and you think of uh, Death Valley, think about, um, you know, the Horseshoe, uh, you think about um, all, all the great venues and you think about the Rose Bowl. Yeah, the one thing I love about it is always that iconic shot outside with uh with the with the facade and the fact that it's in neon lights the rose bowl with that you know neon signed rose outside uh and the fact that every college football game especially the rose bowl itself is like that 50-50 split of of the color of both teams and uh well one thing i think of the rose bowl the first guy that comes to mind is Keith Jackson who will forever be Ooh. the voice of college football as his uh, his iconic words of uh, the granddaddy of them all and then you got, well, then you got your boy, and then you got your boy Rupp Musburger doing that as well. And now this torch has been passed to Chris Fowler. But you know, also in terms of besides the Super Bowl and in the Rose Bowl itself, you know, it was the host of both World Cup finals when the men's was here in '94 and the women's was here in '99. That iconic moment of of uh, Brandy Chastain scored the game-winning penalty kick and took her shirt off. That's right. And then something I do whenever I score. Exactly, especially on PKs, and the fact that it's going to host the uh, college football playoff. It's always, it's always one of those first stadiums when you think, how can we draw you know thousands and thousands of people in in a, in a site that ha- really has no complaints weather-wise? The first stadium is always, oh, let's host the game in the Rose Bowl because every time you know a U.S. soccer game comes to town, uh, tournament-wise, especially the Gold Cup, even next year, some of the first things rumored is the Rose Bowl. Or when FIFA is bringing out possibilities of stripping Qatar of its 2022 World Cup or giving us 2026, one of the things is where do you put the finals? Let's put it in the Rose Bowl. Obviously, you know, one, it's, it's kind of sad, though, especially on the NFL side, that we'll probably never see a Super Bowl played there because you now have this stadium in San Francisco. Uh, it's the home of the 49ers, which is brand new. But I, I personally thought if the 49ers did not inspire, inspire to build a new stadium as soon as they did, I wouldn't have been surprised. Of course, I think I said on this show a few years ago, I wouldn't be surprised if they put Super Bowl 50 in the Rose Bowl, 
considering uh, California was where the very first Super Bowl was played, even though it was in you know L.A. Memorial Coliseum, which is another great venue, but it's weathering as well. Uh, it is it's, it's probably one of the last great um, national landmarks in terms of sport. The fact that it was built in 1921 and is uh, is older than most stadiums out there. And the fact that it's just so huge. Uh, Rose Bowl number one, the the, uh, the best stadiums. So that'll do it for our top our summer series top five best and worst. Go to P four three sixty or blogtalkradio.com to listen to our past episodes of Best and Worst. Any final shout outs, Flo? Uh I think that I'm I'm gonna give a shout out to Mongo Nation and Mongo fans of Mike Francesa. They uh, engaged in a, a reader poll for the Daily News. Who's the biggest figures in New York sports? Number one, Derek Jeter in the fan poll. Number two, uh, Mike Francesa. The best yes. part, I forget who was tied for third, but coming in and fifth, the immortal Jason Giambi. You know, we talk about the Mongos. That may be the greatest Mongo moment ever. The fact that Jason Giambi has been playing for the Yankees in years, was, uh, was able to grab the will of the fan support and compel it into a top five finish and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the top folks in New York sports. How about, I bet there's some people that still think Jambi still plays at the Yankees. Um, <laughs> uh, hell, he should be a, a player manager of the Yankees. One yeah, exactly. All right. So my, on, my that God. Note, <laughs> on that note, we'll end the show. Uh, once again, this is FNAF Radio on Block Talk Radio. For the notorious Ben Florence, I'm Mike Gardner. Join us next week, 4 to 5 Eastern, every Friday on blogtalkradio.com. But until next time, so long, everyone. <laughs>